Welcome to the Makom Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast, where we connect students and listeners to what's happening in Israel and give you insight behind the headlines. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, here as always with co-host Alan Goldman. How are you, Alan? Okay, Mike. Okay. I think <laughs> listeners can track the level of enthusiasm of your okay mics. Well, uh, it's been three weeks into lockdown now or more, and I think it's more. Which is our, our topic for today, is where we are in dealing with COVID and the lockdowns and the you yeah. know, policy during a pandemic. And so we have uh, the return of an excellent guest to help us understand what's going on. Would you introduce him, Alan? Um, yes, of course. We're very uh, honored. Nathan Jaffe has taken time out of his busy schedule um, as the health and science correspondent of the Times of Israel. But once again, join us to kind of give us a update on where we are with the COVID and and where we're going. And his, of course, um, prophetic wisdom of how this is all going to end. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we're not expecting that part. But uh, how you doing, Nathan? I'm okay. I'm okay. Nice to be with you. Mazel tov on your son's bar mitzvah during uh, his COVID era bar mitzvah. Thank you very much. It was um, an interesting so, experience. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd like to hear about that, actually. But in the meantime, let's, let's go to uh, where we are. I mean, the last time we spoke, things were on the uptick and the government was looking at what to do. We've now been in... How do you say seger in English? What's the correct title? A shutdown? Uh, lockdown. Lockdown? Lockdown closure. Closure, I think. So now we've been we've been through, I guess, stage one of the closure and lockdown. And how in how the is second it going? wave. You have to go stage one of the second wave of the right. Yeah, and it, I I have to be honest, like unless unless I read you very carefully, it is hard because you get different during the day, you get different inputs of things that are happening, and it's hard to sort of get a big picture. Well, let's, I mean, a very easy way of getting the big picture is, is through the following disturbing fact. When we spoke last, it was at the end of July. At the end of July, we were already well into the pandemic. We'd had March, April, May, June, the whole of July. We'd had five months of pandemic, the end of July, and the death count stood at around 500. Mm-hmm. That was not particularly long ago, and yesterday we passed a death count of 2,000. Mm-hmm. Um, so from that you get a sense of how quickly things have been gathering pace, from 500 deaths at the end of July, then we passed the 1,000 mark five weeks ago, and then in just five weeks we've climbed to 2,000 deaths here in Israel from the coronavirus. That's doubling and then doubling again, which is a very disturbing trend, which means that, that what? What does that mean? Does that mean that the government's doing a bad job? Does that mean that pandemics are uncontrollable? Despite hard work, does it mean the people aren't doing what they need to do? Well, in terms of what it means, first of all, let's look at it on a human level. Firstly, and very significantly, it means that there are 2,000 very sad families um, across Israel, um, well, Jewish families, Arab yeah, families, some, Orthodox families, secular families. Some of them families. are families who lost multiple people. Yeah, indeed, and families that lost multiple people. Um, so, you know, you know, a great deal of, of a sense of tragedy um, of lives lost 
to this virus. And I think the human level is actually, this is really interesting because I think the human level is something that's been sadly absent from the discussion in Israel. Until now, we've not seen enough humanizing of people who have died, people who have been sick with this. Um, we've just not had those human stories, which is, which is very strange to me because Israel is generally quite good at getting those human stories out there. Um, if you think when there's a terror attack, we hear those human stories straight away. Um, yeah. And yet, when it comes to this coronavirus, the people have remained faceless, nameless. If, um, if we, I mean, if we could do a parallel, right? The the second intifada, which lasted from 2000 to 2005, had a thousand deaths, or five, you know, five years of the thousand deaths. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So, and we had those thousand deaths now in five weeks. Yes. So it's a very serious human That's, toll. Now, also, we should remember. That's not the entirety of the death count that Israel is seeing because I was speaking uh, two days ago and just published the interview yesterday with Yehuda Meshi Zahav, who is the head of the Zaka organization. Mm -hmm. um, and what his organization does is receives, or one of the things it does is receives the bodies of Jewish people from the diaspora who right. have died from all sorts of causes, but especially at the moment of coronavirus. And during the pandemic, his organization has received 1,800 bodies of wow. diaspora Jews who have died of coronavirus and are coming to Israel in order to be buried. And that is mind-boggling because if you think about it, the, the proportion of Jewish people who die in the diaspora who end up being buried in Israel is obviously a very small minority. So we're getting a taste of the impact of this on the Jewish world. Wow. Now, why do you that think is, we're uh, not humanizing the stories? Is it the sheer numbers in the sheer speed? Is it because disease is different than terrorism and we react to it differently? Or is it that patients are inaccessible because they're quarantined and so journalists just don't have access to them? Yeah, I, I think patients are, are, for the most part, inaccessible, um, that they aren't necessarily keen to get their story out there. But I think we're seeing a change in that because we're seeing people who are saying, you know, you know, I'm feeling the effects of this virus and I would like other people to understand what it is, what it means and what it does. And I had this uh, startling interview last week um, with a woman who said that both her and her husband didn't believe in coronavirus. They believed it was a political fabrication they believed it was you know almost a figment of the imagination um, and they were convinced of this and at the end of August they went for a lovely day out spent the day together got home in the evening the husband was feeling a little bit unwell went to sleep they laughed and joked about the idea that it could be coronavirus he woke up at 8 o'clock in the morning with pains, ended up being rushed into hospital um, and has been in the hospital ever since. Um, at the time when I spoke to his wife, he was sedated um, due to the impact of the coronavirus. His kidneys were not working properly. And she said to me that when he woke up in hospital, the doctor said, do you know where you are? And he said, no. And they said, you're in the coronavirus ward. And he said, what? Coronavirus? How can I be in the coronavirus ward given the virus doesn't exist? So 
Why did she agree to speak to me? Because she feels that uh, that stories like this are important for people to hear. So I think we are we are starting to see the people who've been subject to this virus and their families realise that their stories do need to be shared. I I have a feeling, guys. I'm just going to suggest it's not based on anything other than you know my own. Uh, my own perception, but there's a certain denial running in, in, in Israeli society. Not that, that there's not a coronavirus, but that it's, it's as deadly as it, as it seems to be. And if you live in a denial, if you kind of sweep that under the rug a little bit, then you don't have to confront it. We don't like all, all these problems that we're having. That, that's just that I feel like. I don't think it's only What's Israel. On? I think there's two. There's two. We're, we're, it's a strange era that I don't know is paralleled in previous epidemics or pandemics. And one is the denial of the thing itself, and then the other is I accept that there is a thing, but I deny the policy guidance of how to live with it. And uh, do you know Nathan? I mean, is this is this something unprecedented, or is this normal part of how populations react during this sort of epidemic? Yeah, I mean, I think the psychology that kicks in here is very complex and people um, respond in different ways, process things in different ways. And, um, you know, I, I, I tend to think that, uh, that, you know, people have difficulty struggling with these things. And when people have difficulty kind of processing it, absorbing it, it's... Um, I think that's part of human nature and I think we're programmed not to accept that, you know, something is so worrying, something is so concerning, because at the end of the day, especially in Israel, you know, we uh, we have an attitude of saying, you know, you feel like you're a dead end, at a dead end, but things will somehow be okay. We've gone through all these different difficult experiences, things aren't always as bad as they seem, and in a way that's part of the national ethos which works for the good but maybe it uh, maybe it makes people a little bit reticent in following certain directions um, but in some ways I think Israelis have this certain aspect of the directions that people have found maybe easier than another place I mean what we've not seen here um, I don't want to stray into politics but in America we saw this um, this issue with a, uh, a Fox News um, anchor who tweeted uh, Joe Biden was wearing a mask and tweeted, uh, you know, maybe he would like a purse with that, insinuating that there is something unmanly, something unmasculine about wearing a mask, which I know is a narrative that does uh, does go around in America, whereas here I would say that's pretty much absent from the discourse. There is not a sense that, you know, there is something... Um, unmanly or um, or weak in wearing a mask. I think that's something that people uh, do recognise is serious. Does everyone do it all the time? No, because uh, because people are uh, human well, beings human and they are relaxed. Yeah, that's human it's nature. A social issue. Narrative it's not a of gender issue. is not there. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't depend on your political orientation how you respond to it in Israel. Whereas America, it's very politicised. Yes, it is. Yeah. And yet, and yet, but our politics have uh, have been have been quite fusing, confusing, right? Our politics have been quite confusing, right? I mean, it seems like we're back. I don't know. I mean, it seems like we're back after that first stage where we're honestly arguing, okay, how do we come out of this, and again, getting in this murky waters of uh, who's making decisions and special interest groups and all that. Um, when are schools going to open, and for whom, and 
Yeah, I think this is something that that people are angry about. I think um, I, I'm not sure it's a right wing, left wing issue. I think it's more an issue of of management and political leadership. Um, and people saying, you know, the government needed to be more transparent, the government needed to be clear about its policies, the government needed to be clear about what its parameters were for when a lockdown happens, when a lockdown doesn't happen, um, how to actually keep us in the picture. I think there was a lot of frustration about that. And there was also a feeling that um, a national lockdown could have been avoided if local lockdowns were well implemented. So there has been kind of a lot of frustration that has bubbled up within the political sphere, but I'm not sure that it's been kind of a right-wing, left-wing issue, and it, it's really not been an issue of, you know, some people believe in the virus and some people don't, and that's divided politics. Right. It's been much more complex than that. Right. And, and it does seem that this time around, the government is saying, look, we learned a lesson from the last lockdown, that we didn't have a multi-stage ease out. And so we're trying to plan one better for this time around. Does that have, does that have, is that like a a scientifically based approach? Is it a sociologically based approach? Is it meaningful? Are they right? Uh, Yeah, so there are certain things that have happened differently this time. Um, I think one of the key things, by the way, is just being freer on people leaving their homes and getting fresh air, leaving, for example, children's playgrounds open, these types of things make a big difference to the psychological well-being of the nation. And also an effort to to be clearer about where we're heading. So instead of having um, nightly news conferences with you know new regulations coming into effect tomorrow, I sense that people can have some understanding of where things are at, some understanding of when schools will be reopening to really kind of communicate about things better. And I think that is based on public opinion research and research of what people need in terms of understanding where things are heading. So that's definitely been done better. But there is a definite vagueness. I guess that's a contradiction in terms of definite vagueness, but there is a clear (laughs) vagueness in all of this. which is, okay, this will happen at a certain stage, you know, X number as, of new yeah. uh, new cases each day. Um, but, you know, I don't think people necessarily follow when that will happen or when those parameters would all be met. So people are still kind of facing a lot of uncertainty. Well, there's uncertainty and there's distrust. In other words, after the last lockdown, the first lockdown, I should say, uh, the government said, well, if we hit 2,000 new cases a day, we're going back to full lockdown. And it took till seven, 8,000 oh, wow. cases a day for them to even go back to this quasi-lockdown, which I wasn't sure would work. I mean, this to me felt like a lighter version of lockdown, but it does seem to be yielding results. I guess that yes. wasn't really a question. That was a bunch of different comments. It, it does. It does. And I think the question which some people are wondering is, you know, if you remember last time when things opened up, they opened up with kind of very large gatherings. We're talking about large weddings, large large assemblies of people. Um, and I think a question is how much can just be stopped just by 
just by saying, okay, we're not having a lockdown, but we're not having large gatherings. We're not having weddings. We're not having uh, or large weddings. We're not having um, large synagogue gatherings and that kind of thing, because those do seem to be the drivers of infection. Um, but here in Israel, we don't like to do things by halves. We feel that, uh, you know, if we're returning to normality, then it should be normality. And if we're in lockdown, then it should be lockdown. But I think... Uh, I think what's happening now is that people are coming to rea a realization that we can't any longer work with those black and white scenarios and there is going to be this long period of of great where we are waiting for a vaccine we're waiting for life to return to full normality and we do need to uh, to live within I guess what they call this new normal I think that I mean I think uh, one of the big problems is the is the schools because where we can I mean those other it seems like we were able to come with to some kind of um, place in terms of weddings and and synagogue, right? Because schools haven't really opened up since in any meaningful way. But schools was, seem seem to be a real core of the of the spreaders, um, and that is a real, you know, that's a real issue, right? Schools are a real issue. I mean, um, it, it has its its effects are much greater than the effects of a wedding, of a big wedding, or even or even synagogue service. We could do it Alan, on the street. Alan, you mean effects? You mean uh, Alan? You mean effects on society or yeah. spreading the disease? Both. It, well, effects on society. I mean, it, it, the schools have a much bigger effect on societies because it, it limits parents. Right. Uh, it means yeah. children. It you know, it's also in terms of keeping children in all, all those things that it has a much know. bigger effect. I don't know what so, effect it has in spreading when you open school. Everyone said it, but now the well, studies are equivocal, aren't they, about how how much schools are contributing to spread? I mean, the latest studies seem to suggest that under the age of ten, children. Yeah. Um, uh, catch the virus less, carry the virus less, transmit the virus less, um, which if that's the case is pretty promising and actually pretty convenient because that's precisely the age that can't be left alone um, at home. So, you know, if the younger children can go back to school, it's going to make a big difference to, uh, to the state of the economy. It's going to make a big difference to their education because their people, ch people are... Uh, that children of that age are far less able to sit down and uh, manage a lesson on Zoom, and I think it'll also uh, it'll also have a major impact on the uh, calm and uh, mental health of parents like me who are managing small children. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Go ahead, Alan. No, but that, that's, you know, it's 10. It still has a major effects for those who are older. And, and, and schools, schools play such a fundamental role in our socialization, um, you know, beyond just the educational uh, factors. Um, and all these kids out of school, not, you know, even if they get the, the materials. So, I, I don't know. It just seems to me... Uh, a, a, a very, a very um, sensitive uh, part of the whole discussion that, that doesn't seem to have a really good answer. Absolutely, absolutely. Another element that we've seen in this second wave, which has characterized the public discussion here in Israel, has been a, uh, a public discussion over um, 
over communities and specifically the ultra-Orthodox community, which is um, there's a lot of controversy surrounding um, conduct, surrounding uh, virus rates in the ultra-Orthodox community, which are far higher than in any other sector of Israeli society. And this is something which is on the minds of all the policymakers um, and and the public here, and something that's obviously unique to Israel. Yeah. Oh, well, not. I mean, you have that in. Uh, we're seeing a similar thing going on in in yeah in New York City and uh, and uh, suburbs of. Yeah. Look, I'll tell you another one is another one of these socialization things that makes the lockdown so difficult, and it seems like a small thing, but both both politically and socially, the ability to get together with family on the holidays is so is so hardwired into our community lifestyle that a not doing it is so burdensome but then b when we see politicians violating that rule and getting together with family on holiday oh, yeah. the place goes the country goes crazy and then people start violating it left and right and start saying so i i wonder if this shouldn't be in the column of things like keeping playgrounds open in other words what you're describing, Nathan, is like how tight do I draw it that that, that it becomes uh, unproductive. But I, I guess I guess what I'm saying is I, I do think that this I, I was suspicious that this reduced lockdown wouldn't be effective, but it does seem to be effective. And if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying part of that is just psychologically allowing people a release valve is part of what makes it work and be sustainable. Is that what you're saying? Um, yeah, I think I think the psychology just play, does play a large part because at the end of the day, people's level of compliance um, depends on all these more abstract things. Depends on uh, trust. Depends on the feeling that they're not completely imprisoned in their homes, um, and so that does definitely make a difference. But what you raised, um, the issue of public trust um, and leadership of. Uh, government figures and politicians, that is a real crisis that we're seeing at the moment. So while in some respects this is being done better than it was in the past, there is a real crisis regarding this issue of uh, of the conduct of politicians, the conduct of leaders who have been spotted, seen breaking regulations, breaking rules, and that obviously dampens the enthusiasm of the public to comply. So I wonder if that's something they should... Ease up on the rules of that sort of small scale interaction, as long as everybody's sort of agreeing to have major events, whether it's theater or large gatherings or weddings or other social events, that people are seem to be willing to accept backing away from. Except, as you're pointing out, really in the Haredi sector, it doesn't seem to be working, and in the world of protests that seems to move ahead despite whatever regulations are implied, which is a very sensitive issue because there's a freedom of speech problem. But I don't know how, how socially distanced, they don't seem to be very socially distanced. Yeah, so you bring up three, three key issues here. The first is, you know, lockdown or just kind of limiting everyday life. And there are very strong arguments saying, look, lockdown is not sustainable. What is sustainable is just just limit interactions, just in every context, no crowds, no gatherings, more than 10 people across the board. Um, 
And if you do that, then you will limit the spread of the virus. You know, it's, it's difficult, but it's not as difficult as being in lockdown. Do that, limit the spread of the virus, and then slowly return to normality. Um, and that's a, that, that's a view that's being put forward by some pretty significant experts. And you're saying, in kind of a, a related and kind of a separate point, okay, but there's, there's two, two contexts that clearly are not sustainable with gatherings limited to 10 people, the first of those being prayer. Um, and the second of those being protests. And they're not really connected, but they have been connected in the political sphere and in the public conversation. Um, So prayer, synagogue gatherings, you know, there's a very strong lobby in Israel for those to remain functioning. And while some people are happy praying in a outdoor service with just 10 people, for some people in Israel, especially members of the Hasidic community who have a very strong connection to their leader, to their rabbi. For some people, that just doesn't feel like Jewish observance. That just doesn't feel like um, Judaism. And they want regular Jewish life to continue in some form. And they say, you know, Judaism has continued through all sorts of hardships. You know, it shouldn't stop now. And that's the argument that's put forward. Um, and, you know, the scientists say something else. The scientists say, look, you know, it's, it's great to have those ideals of not letting anything get in the way of your faith, but at the end of the day, the virus doesn't respect that. So you have that discussion that's going on over religious life and over protests. You have a discussion which is to say, okay, Israel is a democratic state which has great respect for the right to protest. Um, and should that ever be interfered with? And the protesters tend to say, look, you know, this is this is really central. This should not be stopped for any reason. They will say also that spread of the virus is pretty small in their outdoor events, which they try to socially distance, although some people would um, disagree. And others say, look, you know, you know, fighting the virus means fighting the virus. There's a cost, and if the cost has to mean stopping protests, and that should happen as well. So there's all of these arguments, discussions that are coming together, and then what's happened here in Israel, specifically something that kind of really cuts to the uh, cuts to the essence of how people feel about these things is that you have the prayer lobby that says, you know, prayer should be, you know, an ultimate value, saying, how can you continue protests if you stop prayer? You know, saying, how can you, okay, if you stop everything, then fine, but how can you continue protests if you stop prayer? And people feel, the kind of prayer lobby feels that that is an affront on Jewish observance, that that is an affront on Jewish tradition. Um, Which, uh, you know, is this very, very heated conversation, this very heated discussion that goes on and on. So I, I just want to I want to comment on the Haredi part, and then I have a question for you about the about the ultra orthodox Haredi. The, so the comment is, even there, their lives have been. I mean, if we look at the, you know, they do have the highest rate. Something like forty percent of patients are in the Haredi world, and only like twelve percent of the of the population. So definitely, very very high rate. But now that they have also cut back their life, even those who are violating the rules. Right. Even if we look at the the famous wedding of the Belzarebis, uh 
family that had 2,000 participants, which we look at it now, that's crazy, and it is, is crazy in, the, in these times. In regular times, they would have had 30, 40, 50,000 people. So that, you know, in, in other words, so there is a cutback across the board, even, even those ones. But the, the real question I want to ask about the Haredim is something that's been reported. And it's just mostly Hasidim, not all the Haredim. I think most yeah. Haredim are right. pretty much observing. Yeah. And it's even not even all the Hasidim either. Don't forget Correct. it's not all the Hasidim Correct. either, right? It's, there's certain groups. The Gera so the Haredi world has it, been, yeah, yeah. and mo- most of the Haredi world have 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 cut. Everybody's cut back. Some of them have done as much. But the the interesting thing that I have seen in the that came in the press that was also in the Times of Israel uh, was this underground Haredi medical uh, yeah. treatment that's going on um, uh, for Corona victims, which also suggests a higher level of of sick and and. Um, but can you comment on that? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, I think the beginnings of this program, it's a program uh, that is a non-government program in order to support people uh, who have coronavirus in their homes with breathing equipment and that kind of thing. Um, And I think the beginnings of it were kind of ideological with uh, people wanting to circumvent... um, the official health system because this started life in kind of the very hardline um, Haredi world where people don't want too much contact with the state of Israel but it's grown and it's become seen as kind of you know a viable option for home care and what that does is two things it a indicates that um, that the extent of the virus uh, and actual sickness from the virus in the ultra-orthodox world is higher than we realized and also shows the determination of people to have options for home care that kind of uh, that don't rely on the state on the state infrastructure um, which has its positives and negatives on the one hand you know it's boosting capacity but on the other circumventing the the main state system kind of undermines its authority as well right which I guess is part of the goal, no? It's not just uh, it's, it's a dismissal of the authority and, and, and wanting to stay under the radar so that they're not, so that their numbers are artificially deflated, so that they their their uh, their policy goals could be achieved by by claiming they're not as big a problem as they are. Potentially, yes. I also find it fascinating because, I mean, the whole world was scrambling, I don't know if this still is, for, you know, breathing machines and ventilators and stuff, and where do they get them from? <laughs> yeah, I mean, most of that discussion was to do with kind of very large ventilators, whereas they've always right. been kind of, the, you know, the smaller, more modest ventilators in circulation, uh-huh. but yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, I think it really comes down to, for me, in my own... I always come down to, you know, the lack of civility and social cohesion and mutual respect isn't just a moral problem in a society. It actually has practical implications that when when there are things that we have to communicate and cooperate over, especially when we disagree strongly on and have different, that lack of ability to communicate productively gets in the way of effectively protecting the population. These, the, the civility of a democracy isn't just a moral thing. It's a, it's a pragmatic need to address these questions so that 
you know, well, we, you know, we, we feel synagogue is important. Well, we feel protesting is important. Well, how can we work it out in a productive way? How can we all compromise in ways? It, it, it's, we, we think of them sometimes as separate, but I, I think it's the underlying fabric that we need in order to get to, to, to solve problems and build a better future. Is that me being Pollyannish and... Yeah. It is. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if it's being Pollyannish, but, uh, I mean, it, 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 does, it does serve to show some, I think, real deep rifts in, in Israeli society that we've known for a long time, right? That there's, that, that, that there's definitely a lack of cohesion or a vision of, uh, of values and what is, you know, the ultimate importance of us here and now and what guides our, our country. Whether it be reflected in talks we've had about the la not being able to agree on a constitution, if there should be one at all or not one, or what would be in a constitution, um, to uh, you know, uh, civil versus of, religious, you know, that sense of shared experience issues. and shared destiny is is an underlying necessity for having a united. I don't know if battle is the right word against the pandemic, but a united front against this pandemic because 2,000 people in a country of 9 million people that's a that's a terrible terrible number and it's I mean do, do we have a sense Nathan of where the numbers are going to go going forward um, so I think that what you were saying about um, social cohesion I think there's something that goes a little bit deeper which is to do with empathy um, and I think there's actually a lack of empathy and understanding in Israeli society so it's not just hey, we want prayer, we want protest, let's talk about it, let's work it out. It's about just the population not understanding each other in terms of values. So what does it mean to say to the follower of a Hasidic sect, you may not have any gatherings? Well, it's, um, it's taking away their main, uh, their main social context, their main contact with friends and other people, it's taking away um, the music of their lives because synagogue uh, would be where they hear their tunes, their music, it would be where they see their leaders, where they get their inspiration, where they get their education, um, and their prayer, which uh, for them would probably be kind of one of the central aspects of their day and of their life. Now. I don't think any of that. Um, I don't think any of that excuses any misconduct that takes place. But on the other hand, a starting point of actually understanding that is going to make the discourse, is going to make the conversation far more productive. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I mean, I would even go even further to say, for certainly at least the Hasidic man, the shul, the synagogue, is more important in many ways than the home. As more central, I don't know, important maybe not the right word, but more central to their life. They spend much mm -hmm. more time in that than, than the home. So to taking that away is taking away really the central uh, part of their life or place in their life. Again, not as any excuses, but to understand exactly as you're saying. Yeah, and I think if that would have been expressed at the start of the pandemic, I think if those understandings would have been there, I think if there were more empathy um Towards that, I'm not saying that you know we would definitely have a completely different picture, but I think the discussion would have been far more respectful and far more productive. Hmm. 
by the way, and you see you it can, in, sorry, you see it in, in right? Because us as modern Orthodox will say, well, we could just do it, you make a minion in the street. So what's the difference? Well, you don't need the shoe. But in, in the, certainly in the Hasidic world, it's, it's much more than that. It's not just about having a quorum for prayer, right? It's, so. And for those who are disturbed by the protests, you also have to have empathy for people who felt, feel politically marginalized. Yeah. They feel their, their, their values of what they want the state to be being pushed further and further away. And they need to yeah. express that in, in, you know, in a cycle where they've they've gone from election to election they need to feel some way to so i think i yeah. think your empathy point is makes sense across the board yeah that's yeah. a great point good place yeah. to to end i think empathy. i think so and yeah. a call to empathy. empathy yeah yeah i think so i think that's so and 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 a desire to look for the human stories not only of the people who suffer from the disease but the all of us who are affected but thinking on it on i think Nathan, at the beginning, you said we have to look at this from the human perspective first, and I think your closing saying is a very similar yeah. comment. Yeah, I think the uh, I think the difference between the two comments is at the start we're saying, um, you know, to understand the human story of those people who are facing loss, mm-hmm. and at the end of the day, um, I think the challenge is that um, that the divisions that this that this is brought or perhaps highlighted to Israeli society um, could actually uh, could actually endure long after the end of the pandemic long after there is a vaccine and um, and they are highlighted they're clear to everyone at the moment and I think one of the challenges right now is to uh, is to have a push towards some kind of unity that uh, that will mean that after the pandemic um, Israeli society is able to regroup and uh, and face things together. Hopefully, hopefully Amen. this will, yeah, we all have to work then to make it something that yeah. brings us more together. Thank you for the, not only the information, but also the wisdom, Nathan, that's very helpful. Yeah. And uh, uh, psychologically helpful, not just informative, that, uh, <laughs> and, and I think spiritually helpful. Thank you so much. Hopefully next time we'll be able to have you talk about a vaccine that will come soon and speedily. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah. All yeah. right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Alan. Thank you, Mike. And you don't have to log off, but that's the end of the episode. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.